plan that I had made and prayed about. Uh, today's sermon is on um, the cost of love, or how love is costly, and I think that is uh, well-timed. It'll be easy uh, for you, I think, to see that if we are loving others uh, in the midst of the situation today, that it will cost, and it will be inconvenient, but that is essentially uh, what love is. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. There are no sermon notes online, but there are paper copies, and it's a pretty bare-bones sermon notes today. It's basically, here's the passage, and there's some, uh, on the right side, there's some places for you to take some notes as we work through um, the passage in Matthew chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can look at Matthew chapter 10. If you want to open up uh, your phone and find Matthew chapter 10, uh, then we will start that in just a minute. But since we aren't taking offering at this time, uh, when I normally would pray, let's just take a minute now and let me pray um, for us today, and then we can um, get into Matthew chapter 10. Please bow with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being in control. Thank you for reminding us today as we come together that you are God, and this is why we're here. Thank you for sending your son as a sacrifice. Thank you for taking our place on the cross, coming back to life again. And thank you, Jesus, for your ascension to heaven. And now you're on the throne. You are in control. Even though we may not feel like you are, we know that you are. So help us to experience your control in this world, your control in our lives. Help us to understand in a full, as full as we can that you are the Lord. And may we submit to your lordship, submit to your authority, Heavenly Father, we submit our fears to you, our anxieties. These are normal. I think many of us feel this. We have disappointments when things are canceled. We're worried about the future. But Jesus, you are Lord today, and you are going to still be Lord uh, tomorrow and in the future. So we thank you for that. Please guide us. Please give us the strength that we need. Help us to uh, be transparent and yet also be open to you nudging and urging us and encouraging us toward action, if that is what's necessary. Help us to have discernment to know what is wise and what is uh, the best way to show love in a situation like this. Please guide each of our decisions at all times. And Lord, as we've prayed before, I pray that this church would become even more loving than we are. Help us to love you first and foremost above everything. And may that love overflow to our brothers and sisters and into our community. And we would love to be known for... Um, our love of God, our love of Jesus, and our love for others. As you have said, others will know that we are your disciples by the love that we show to each other. So fill us. We need you to fill us with your love. Give us a love for those around us, in our family, in our church, in our schools, our neighbors, and everywhere else that we need it. Give us love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as we talk about um, God's love, we have talked about um, the love of God as displayed uh, through stories in the Old Testament. We have talked about the love of God through um, Jesus' baptism. And we are focusing mostly now on the New Testament. But as you know, we've talked about this before, the love of God is the main theme throughout the entire Bible. Not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. And today, the focus is not so much on God's love for us, but what it really means to love. And how love is and can be costly. 
And so in the passage today, chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39, uh, one of the phrases that Jesus speaks is, one of the, is the most often repeated uh, quotation of Jesus in the New Testament. There are some, none of this will probably be new for you, but it is a very uh, difficult passage actually for us to work through. So open your Bibles. Let's just start chapter 10, uh, verse 34. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to, to bring peace, but a sword. Um, okay, wait, did I say that? I, sometimes I say things that I don't mean. So did I say, do you, you have your Bibles there, right? Like, is this one of the times, you know, when the pastor reads it backwards or, or inserts a word that he should, and then you're like, no, you're wrong, because he's just making sure that you're awake. But let me try that again. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Okay, that's not what I was expecting. I, I thought it said, um, I thought Jesus said, I did not come to bring a sword, but peace. So maybe this is a typo. Can you check your, what, what does it say in your, your Bibles there? It does? Okay. So I must have like, um, I don't know. I guess I, I just assumed I knew. It. I'll just have to, um, I don't know what to do now. My whole sermon is based on a, a I, I supposed, I guess I, it says do not suppose, and I came with this presupposition. I thought, it, I thought Jesus did come to bring peace, didn't he? It, why does he, why does he say, I did not come to bring peace, Jesus said, but a sword. Like what? I was pretty sure. Weren't you sure that it says the other? Like if I had, if I read it correctly, and you were probably thinking, wait, what? This is one of those tricks, but it's not. So let's just go with it. Okay, this is, this is Jesus. He's speaking. He says, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. We've double-checked. That's exactly what he says. Whatever translation you're using, right? I mean, some of you are using different translations. So he said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I'm pretty sure, though, that Jesus did come to bring... I, I, don't you think? I mean, Jesus, he's the Messiah, the Savior. Did, he came to bring peace, right? He did, right? Because I remember, uh, like Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 to 7, a verse that's often used at Christmas time. He says, For to us a child is given, to us a son is given. Uh, if you're taking notes, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, 7. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of what? Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. This doesn't sound like the kind of Messiah that's coming to bring a sword. But yet, this is what Jesus says. Or Zechariah, if you're taking notes, Zechariah chapter 9, 10. It says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. See, like they're taking away the swords and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The sword, what, what, what image comes to mind when you think of a sword? It's like violent, right? It's like a military control and death and killing. And Jesus says he came to bring a sword. In this context, this was the Roman Empire. They, they, the Roman Empire was not nice to the church. They were not nice to Christians. They, they persecuted them. And so I think... When Jesus is speaking to these, these first disciples, they would hear him say this, and they're going to have these images of, oh, like the, this is 
really awful. The sword, they understand what that means, to be killed just for being a follower of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, I, I did not come to bring peace, he said. I guess that's why it says, do not suppose. That's the first thing, right? Because we come with presuppositions sometimes. I already know what the Bible says. I already know what God's like. So we, we kind of read it incorrectly sometimes. So he's saying, don't suppose. Don't do what I did. Don't suppose that I came to bring peace. Because I came to bring a sword, not peace. What is he saying here? In fact, in the context of the Roman Empire, it's bad enough. But um, actually, Jesus kind of makes it worse. Let's keep reading. Here, what does he say in the next few verses? He says, um, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, the, the violence isn't coming from some military regime. It's one's enemy. These are... Um, sorry, I skipped a verse, didn't I? 35. Sorry, for I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the... This is why Jesus came, he says. I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother's mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So the enemies are not from without, they're from like our home. This is pretty shocking. And what does this have to do with the love of God? Don't suppose, Jesus says, we have these preconceptions. So we clarified, yes, Jesus did come to bring peace. We know that. Blessed are the peacemakers. Right? The Sermon on the Mount, like that's, that, that's, Jesus came to bring peace. But this peace, I think what Jesus is saying is it doesn't come without conflict. It's a peace that comes in a difficult way. And it's important that we understand this because um, sometimes we just have this presupposition or often in our culture people think Jesus is, is just this really peaceful dude. He just, you know, love everything and everything's okay. But they don't see that Jesus was actually very politically active. And he, was, uh, he, he came to bring a sword. He said, your enemies will be from, like not just without, but from your own home. The sword is not a literal sword, because you remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? Um, wasn't there one of his disciples? Wasn't it like Peter? And he pulled out a sword, and he, he sliced off the guy's ear. Do you remember that? And then Jesus rebuked him and said, no, and then he healed the ear. So he, he, he was not for that kind of violence. So he's not saying, I'm actually bringing, you know, this, I want you to carry your swords. He's not really saying that. But what he is saying is that this is the consequence of those who follow Jesus, if you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, violence will be coming from out, from others. Other people will become your enemies because when we pledge allegiance to Jesus and Jesus only, when we submit to that authority, we submit to his lordship in our lives, that, that becomes offensive to people who don't live that way. And so this is what will happen the sword is not coming from his disciples, it's from outside, because it's offensive to people, the way Jesus lives sometimes, and his followers who are submitting to his authority. And so, 
people who reject this personal authority of Jesus will be offended, and, um, and so we may expect, we can expect similar treatment to what Jesus received. Okay, Matthew chapter 10, uh, verses 21 to 22, just back up a little bit. Jesus kind of says a similar thing here. Brother will betray brother to death. This is verse 21 and 22. And a father will betray his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's pretty strong words. So now let's get to that verse I read earlier, verse 37. He says, anyone who loves their father, now we come to love. Okay, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. These are pretty strong words, right? Like, what's wrong with a father or mother? What's wrong with loving your father and mother a lot? What's wrong with loving your children a lot? There's nothing wrong with loving. that. This is kind of what we do as parents and as family. We love each other. But one thing that we need to note here, we've talked about this before, is being a follower of Jesus Christ, it's all about love. It's all about who we love or what we love. It's not so much about what we know. It's about love. So Jesus doesn't talk about the knowledge that's important for us for salvation or the knowledge that's important for discipleship. He says it's about love. You have to love God more than anything. It's not just knowing about God, right? Because right? people can know things and become arrogant or proud or not very loving. And so at the very heart of of our, our discipleship, of we're trying to follow Jesus Christ at the very heart. I mean, even as I say that, I realize it's kind of whatever. The, it's our heart. Our desires, who we love or what we love is what is most important because this is what shapes our behavior. It's what shapes our longings. Whatever we love the most is where we put all of our energy into. Whatever we treasure the most, that's where our attention goes to. And so, we can, for a while, we can change our behavior and we can live nicely and, and some people have, have better self-will and more control that way and so behaviors can look very good on the outside. But Jesus doesn't talk about how we look to other people. He knows what's on the inside and it's, it's all about our heart. It's about who we love or what we love. That is the most important thing. Now, if our love is aligned correctly, if we love God more than anything else, then behaviors naturally come out of that. Do you know sometimes we, we have really good self-control sometimes. Maybe we're, we're in a traffic jam or, or whatever it is that, that kind of ticks you off sometimes. There's, there's different things. And, and we're able to control it because we've got enough sleep and we're not stressed at other places. But when, when there's a lot of things going on, you're, sometimes we just, it just blurts out, oh, oops, I didn't really mean that. Where did that come from? You know, a bad word or like uh, degrading someone else, just like trying to sticks up. You know where that came from? It came from your heart. That's what Jesus says. That's what the scriptures say. Because out of the heart is where, that's the root. And so if we change our heart, behaviors will change naturally. We can change our behaviors and still not have our heart changed. This is what's most important for Christian discipleship. So when Jesus says, anyone who loves... Their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He doesn't want us to hate each other. But our love of God is the most important 
thing to us as followers of Jesus Christ. And he says, worthy of me twice. Worthy of me. Do you, do you know what that means? It's just another way of saying, um, do you have what it takes? Because not everyone has what it takes. Not everyone is worthy of following Jesus. Like, it means, Do you have what it takes? Do you know what this is going to mean for you? To be a full-on, 100% devoted follower of Jesus? Like, Do you have what it takes? Because Jesus says, if you love someone more than you love me, you don't got what it takes. Like love, like it's not going to be easy. No one promised an easy life. But Jesus says, this is what is most important. And so this is actually, I believe, it's good news for many of us because we realize that although family is very key, Family must never become an idol to us. It must never take the most important thing in our lives. And sometimes our happiness, our satisfaction depends on our family situation. But like, we're all people. We're all humans. We all mess up and we're, none of us are ever going to be perfect. And so we're going to be continually falling short. If everything, if your whole... If, if satisfaction, if happiness in your life depends on your brother or your sister or your son or daughter or your family, we will be continually disappointed. But if our love, first and foremost, is directed at God, he will never let us down. He will never disappoint us. And as we're filled with God's love, it naturally flows to the love of brothers and sisters. And, but first and foremost, God is saying, this is how important it is for us to love. But it's good news because not everyone is married. And that's, that's a good thing, actually. In Judaism, it was kind of not looked on so, so well because the whole point was to, to have more and more and more children, to, to have more and more people who are following um, God and following Yahweh. And that, that's how they, how they expanded. But Christianity changed that. And, and Jesus was single. And the Apostle Paul said it's better to be single. In fact, we, we, we flipped the script on that one, and it's really good to be single and, and um, producing um, spiritual children is, is what's the key now, whereas before it was having, making sure we had heirs and all these sorts of things, and so it is not a bad thing to be single. In fact, Christianity says it's better to be single than it is to be married, and so this is, um, it might be easier for some people to take this message, you know, if you wrote children, and, and it's not that one of the big sacrifices that... Um, people who are single are making is, is, um, is not having heirs. That, that's a bigger sacrifice than just not getting married and not having that kind of a family. But there is room for single people in the church. And first and foremost, we need to understand that maybe this is, well, maybe this is good news for you if you are a single person or if you don't have children. This, our love is never supposed to be first and foremost for family. First and foremost, our love is for God. And it doesn't matter if we're single or married. We all have a place. We all have a role. We're all used. And we're all loved by God. And so sometimes our culture seems to have it, you know, flipped. But we read the scriptures, we flip it back um, to be more in line with God. So, but we'll see in verse 38 and 39, if you're single or if you're married, true life is found somewhere else. Verse 38 says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me doesn't have what it takes. The image of carrying a cross. Crucifixion was pretty ugly 
and pretty bad. The Romans had perfected this, this means of torture and humiliation for the worst of criminals. And if you're a Roman citizen, you were exempt from this. And there were certain things, it was just really awful and humiliating. And people got that. And so Jesus says, if, if we don't get it because we make crosses into jewelry and we think it's, it's beautiful, but it really is not a beautiful, it's a torture. Uh, it's an element of torture. It's a way to torture people, humiliate them as, as to the extreme, the most extreme in the world at that time. So Jesus says, if you're not, if you can't carry your cross, um, you're not worthy. Like you, you actually don't have what it takes to be a follower of me. That's what Jesus is saying. If you don't take up the cross, you see, it may revolve, it may involve um, some, um, some social exclusion if we are full-on, 100% fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. There might be some cost to that. There may be some hostility that we receive. Not because we're rude or stuck up or arrogant. I mean, that might be deserved, but just for simply following Jesus. We are not in, in any danger of being killed for following Jesus. In some countries they are. We are not. But there are some other things that come. And sometimes when awful things happen to us or when pain comes, we ask, you know, God, where are you? Like, how could God let this happen to me if he loved me? But we see here that maybe we're asking the wrong question. Here in Matthew chapter 10, it says we, we should be asking, like, why are we not suffering? Like, what's wrong with me? Why am I living in a way that is not attracting hostility you know, from the world around me? Because this is what Jesus is saying. Do you, do you think you have what it takes to follow him? Not everyone does. Here's a picture. Here's an image of what it takes to follow Jesus Christ. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me isn't worthy of me. And then verse 39 this is the, 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 the saying of Jesus that is most quoted throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It says, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Losing your life for Jesus' sake will find real, true life. Sometimes we live in a way where we protect ourselves. We live in a way it's all about us. And sometimes we see the worst of humanity we also see the best of humanity in times like this, when there's a worldwide pandemic. People stockpiling things that they don't really need and then selling them online to make a fortune. Maybe that's not illegal, but it's not really nice. It is definitely not loving, is it? We should be stockpiling things in order so we can give them away for people who need them. Maybe you have a neighbor who is elderly or who just doesn't have the financial means to go and buy things at that moment because if they don't buy them this morning at seven in the morning, they'll be all gone. Maybe they don't have the way to get out, or maybe they don't have the financial means for that. So we can be, if we're, buying, if we're stockpiling, we're stockpiling in order to give away to help other people, right? Hey, I've got some extra toilet paper. Why don't you use this? We have got a Costco bag of tortillas. So in our family, if we ever run out of toilet paper, we always, you know, can use tortillas. <laughs> it's organic, isn't it? Or maybe it's not, but it isn't the end of the world, but... Um, this, now I'd like to shift a little bit to talk about what it, the cost of love, and we, we want everyone to, to understand God's love. 
We want people to experience God's love. We want people to come into our community not because of anything other than the love of Christ. The love of Christ compels us, and we want the love of Christ to be attractional. We don't want it to be, um, I mean, we love having great music and we love having technology, but this isn't what we're hoping attracts people to the church. We want the love. And so, first and foremost, our love with God is the most important thing. Love of God. When, when you're bored or, or when, when you have free time, if you do have free time, where, where does your mind wander? Where does your mind go to? Like, are there some ways that you can realign your love to be fully focused on God? First and foremost. This is why we have things like set free retreats that we encourage and, and soul care and things because we know it's, it's the heart that matters, not the behavior. It's the heart. The behavior is proof of what's inside. And it's easy for us to put on an exterior and act a certain way and say the right words inside. We're grumbling and we're, we don't, we're not happy that we have to do this. Or what, you know, but God sees that. Other people may not. But when your heart has been changed and when your heart is fully aligned with God, then the behaviors come a little more naturally. It'll never be perfectly natural for us. But as the roots go, so you know, that's, the, that's where the fruit comes from. And so focus on our love of God first. This is what Jesus is saying. And out of that then comes our love for other people. And so how do we show love in the time of coronavirus? I mean, anything that we've done here, uh, we've, we've spaced out the chairs, we've added, we've changed the way we're doing communion and, and offering and all these other things, and we're now streaming on Facebook online. We're not doing this to protect ourselves. First and foremost, we're doing this because we love other people. And it's not fair for us to... to um, to not make these changes in a, in a time. So we're doing what we're doing out of love. And that is something that you need to know. Many people are afraid, and that's totally okay, too, to be afraid. We need a place where people can just say, hey, you know, I'm afraid, and I'm anxious, and, and that, that's totally good. And I just want to hide away, you know, and just you skip the dishes for the next few weeks. I'm not going to go outside. And I, okay, then if that's where you are, that's totally fine. And we want to encourage you to join in this community. But maybe, maybe as we're reading scripture, maybe you'll be encouraged um, to put more focus on others and how this can be a great time for the church. This can be a great time for us to help our community. We have a food bank tomorrow, and we're not canceling that. There's a lot of more. It's, it's pretty tough, actually. Brian's head of the food bank. and the, What Winnipeg Harvest has suggested we do, I mean, it, it is a lot of work. So for the volunteers, it's more work. You see, love is going to cost, and it's going to be a nuisance sometimes. You can't just love, you know, easy ways. So we need to be willing to count the cost. What is, what is the cost that, that we're going to be carrying? You know, the first Christians, um, this is from a uh, former editor of Christianity Today, and I sent this, this uh, article to our board members. And so this is coming from, from his article. He says, the first Christians, early, they saw themselves as the household of God, a family of God. And there were many plagues in the Roman Empire. But they didn't have medicine, and they didn't really maybe understand germs and bacteria like we do today. But there were plagues. But the Christians, they stayed and they served. When everyone else was fleeing the cities, they didn't understand germs, but they understand get out of the city and try to be safe. And the Christians stayed. Um, there's a sociologist named Rodney Stark who wrote this book, The Rise of Christianity. And he says that it was this commitment to providing meaningful care to people who were suffering for the plague 
all by itself. It was this commitment that Christians made to serve people who were suffering. This was the major contributor to growth of the church in the first century because of the way that they showed. It was costly what the Christians were doing. He said, after you recovered from the plague, um, where would you want to worship? You want to go to the pagan temple whose priests and elite benefactors fled the city at the first sign of trouble? Or do you want to go to the household of the neighbor who brought you food and water and care and concern at great risk to themselves? When this plague has passed, when this plague, when this, this epidemic, when this pandemic has passed, because it will, um, in the past, the, 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 what is the Spanish flu or something? I'm not really good at history, but at one time, 3% of the world, the world's population was... Was, um, we died. I think it was called the Spanish Plague or something, right? So, but it passed, and it will pass. So we have hope that it, things will get there. I can't guarantee you that it's going to be easy. I'm not going to say everything's going to be great and fine, because it may not. But it will pass eventually. When this has passed, what will our neighbors remember us for? Will they remember that Christians took um, immediate to decisive action to protect the vulnerable? even at a great and personal risk to themselves while keeping appropriate social distance? Will they remember that their Christian neighbors are the one who provided for their needs? Will they remember that having ensured safety in all the ways that we could, we still gathered um, to worship responsibly? We praised God together every week. We celebrated the resurrection. Even as we, we stopped doing things that are inessential, Will we make clear that serving and worshiping God was the greatest and most essential task in our lives? This is a great opportunity for us as believers. And yes, we're afraid, and yes, we have anxiety, but we do know that Jesus is the Lord. And we do know that love is very costly simply because Jesus' love for us cost him a lot, and it hurt, and it was humiliating. But love is not simple, love is not easy. There is a cost to love. Are we willing to pay that cost? We, we want, right? It's easy to say, yeah, we want people to, to know God's love. We want people to see God's love. But if you're saying that, what it means is you're ready to be inconvenienced. You're ready to give up a little bit. You're ready to suffer a little bit financially. You're ready to, to suffer a little bit in other ways. Because without that, true love is not going to be shown. So I wonder, what are some ways that Cornerstone Alliance Church can show love to our community and show love to each other at times like this. What will we be, what will we be remembered for? Vulnerable people need help. Maybe there are people in your neighborhood that you know who are shut-ins or, or there's elderly people and you could ring their doorbell and say, hey, I'm just going to the grocery store. Do you have a list? I can pick some things up for you because maybe they're not able to get out or, or maybe they just, maybe they need toilet paper and you have some extra. Maybe, maybe, Focus on those people that need help. And it's very easy for us to prioritize ourselves and to maybe hunger down and just say, I'm just going to keep myself safe. I am not doing anything. This is very selfish. But let's, let's be responsible. And if, if, if you have signs, if you have symptoms, then stay away from crowds. But if you don't, like, whatever you do, will you do it out of love for other people? How can we serve others at this time? This is, I don't know the answer, but this is a big question that we will be answering during the next, what is it, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, months, year? However long this takes, we want to show love to other people, but it will be costly and it will be inconvenient. So today we'll be celebrating um, 
the great cost that Jesus paid for us through our celebrating communion and remembering and commemorating his death for us. But these words are stark reminders that love isn't easy. We need to love God first and foremost, more than family, more than anything else. And it's love that is at the core of our discipleship, changing ourselves from the inside out by following, going back to the basics, going back to the very, very simple things that we see um, in the Bible. And so as we celebrate communion, I want us to focus on the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. It was a great analogy that was shared to us earlier about the dresser. I mean, I can't relate to that at all with clothes, you know, that are they're sticking out. So um, I'll ask um, Naomi and Joyce to come back up. And then at the beginning, as we, we trans, transition to celebrating communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper, we'll have a time of silence. And I encourage you just to let God speak to you. Maybe there's something you need to confess. Maybe there's a way for you to remember um, to realign your love back to our first love of Jesus Christ. So we'll take a minute of silence. And then after that, we're, we usually hand it out, right? We, but we're not going to do that. Um, it's up here. There are two tables. And so uh, at, I'm just telling you what's going to happen. We will all stand up and then go this way. So you guys come to the aisle. You guys will go to the outside aisle and then just come around like this. And these communion cups were put here by me wearing gloves and only the gloves have touched them. And then you can take it and go back and sit at your seat. The wafer is all, you just take it off uh, at the right time and we will eat the wafer together and then you take the next layer off and we'll drink together and they are recyclable so keep hang on to it and then throw it in the blue bin at the back and so even if you are not going to uh, participate I encourage you all to do so but if you are not please stand up anyways and walk um, and then you can pass by if you don't want to pick that up and then go back and sit down and hold on to your cup at that time the offering plates are here too for you to put in your prayer requests and also offering envelopes and so that is the way we will do it um, this time today. So let me pray and then we'll have a moment of silence and then, um, and then we will be, the worship team will lead us in a song and you can sing along as you're walking or you can just listen and then when the song is finished we'll give further instructions. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, um, I, I think it's great that you're a God of love. Help us to love others better but thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you show, have shown us what true love is. Please redirect our thinking from whatever we've been misled to so that we can realign ourselves to your definition of love. Realign our love so that you are first and foremost in our lives. May we take this opportunity now to confess to you what comes to mind, knowing that you love to forgive. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.